Hello, Dog Nation, and welcome back to the Dog Nation offseason. I'm Kaylee Mansell with Connor Riley, and it is NFL Combine Week. I'm here in Indianapolis. Connor's in Athens. We've got a lot of big headlines and storylines to cover today, but there is an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Last week, there was a comment made by a viewer that said that Connor had brought shame and dishonor to his family by calling Brock Bowers the greatest Georgia player of all time. So really, Connor, I just wanted to check in on your family and make sure that they were okay. Yeah, look, we're doing great. We're on the right side of history here. You know, again, Herschel Walker scored a touchdown every 19 times he touched the ball. Brock scored one every six times he touched the ball. Uh, you know, I, I know some people are wowed by yards and, and things like that. Last time I checked, games are won by points scored. Brock Bowers did that at the best level that anyone has ever played at Georgia, and I feel very comfortable, along with my family, in knowing that Brock Bowers is the best player to ever play for the University of Georgia. It kind of reminds me of the age-old MJ versus LeBron debate. Some people can't say they see MJ as the greatest player because they weren't alive during that time period. Do you think that if you were alive when Herschel Walker was in his prime at Georgia, do you think your answer might be different? Uh, I mean, I think that may have factor into it, but I, I, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the sport is so different now. You know, Herschel Walker was bowling over insurance salesmen back in the early 80s. Now, I mean, you know, Brock Bowers playing the SEC when it is unquestionably the best conference in college football. So, you know, times do change, but I, I think Brock Bowers and just the uniqueness of him is what puts him over the top for me. Well, as long as you're okay and your family's okay, I'm okay with that answer because I'm right there with you. And I have no shame, even though um, I may have brought shame to my father and my family. My parents are very used to me being wrong, and so I'm very comfortable with that. Well, we've got some big headlines today, starting with our big one. 11 dogs here at the Combine. We've had the chance to talk to five of them already. Some big news coming from Brock Bowers this morning. Still unsure whether or not he's going to participate tomorrow. Hopefully we'll hear more on that, but we're going to break down what we know. We're going to continue on with our spring position preview covering a very important group today, the offensive linemen. Uh, we've got a lot for you in store on that. And we're going to wrap up with uh, some, some G-rated comments. Usually Connor and I like to keep it PG-13 on this show, but uh, we're going to keep it G-rated. Um, here at the end of the show today. Excited to bring you that. But let's start with the combine. Big headline has been Brock, but hearing Javon Bullard this morning, he was the first one to speak. And I definitely think that we had the most lighthearted conversation with Javon. And he kind of reminded everyone that at the end of the day, the players are still human and they're having the time of their lives here. So I want you guys to hear what Javon Bullard had to say this morning at the NFL combine interviews. It was amazing. Dream come true. I mean, I'm like a kid at a candy store, man. Like, I'm talking to uh, head coaches, you know, and GM shaking hands with guys that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't dream of, of seeing. Here's the thing that I have realized about Javon Bullard, and I'm sure, Connor, you can back this up. He would be a great salesman or a great politician because that man can make anything sound great. We were talking about it this morning. New water drinking game. Every time Javon Bullard says the word amazing, you have to take a sip of water. Uh, you know, Javon, uh, and getting to interview him and getting to know him over the years, uh, it's been so cool to watch him grow and improve as both a player and as a person, uh, you know, from Milledgeville, Baldwin High School, not exactly South Georgia, that is dead center, central Georgia there. So mm -hmm. you're allowed to be in favor of him. But uh, I think his comment there is just so telling, you know, a guy that's worked so hard, wasn't heavily recruited coming out of high school. Georgia, obviously, his biggest offer. And 
not only does he go on and he, you know, wins uh, two MVP performances in that 2022 championship run, but makes a ton of plays this past year. And this is probably, you know, because he works so hard and you put your head down and you're just you're grinding all the time. You 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 lift you lift your head up and you're like, wait a minute, I'm interviewing with Mike Tomlin or I'm interviewing with Nick Sirianni and these coaches, and this is probably a very real reminder of. Yeah, you're on the precipice of achieving a lifelong dream of being drafted into the NFL, and Javon is certainly going to do that. And if he plays, if he tests well at the combine tomorrow when he runs on Friday, he's a guy that is, I think, very clearly going to be a day two pick. And there were people wondering, and I know this for a fact, when Georgia took him during that 2021 recruiting cycle, they're like, what does Kirby Smart see in this guy? Well, turns out he saw an NFL defensive back, which Javon Bullard is going to end up being. And, of course, you can find the full interview for all the players that we've had these last two days on YouTube. But one thing that Javon talked about that I thought was really interesting is you spend three years, four years representing an institution, and now you're really at that point where you have to not only represent that institution but yourself. So to hear him have that comment of just being in the moment, because I feel like when you get to the combine, it can be overwhelming for a lot of guys. Like you mentioned, you're, you're meeting with NFL coaches. Everything you've worked for and everything that you've done is for this moment that you're reaching. So to hear him remember that it's all in good fun and that he's deserving of what's in front of him, I thought that was really refreshing. Yeah, and Javon's a guy that is going to be missed at the University of Georgia. I, I think his presence, I think, personified what you saw out of this program in recent years. Obviously, look, they recruit better than anyone, but Javon was a guy that right away came in, worked really hard, impressed people when he first arrived on campus and show that it's a true, and I'm going to use a, a, a Brandon Adams big word here, meritocracy. Uh, if you go out there and do the work, you're going to find yourself out on the field. And, and Bullard showed that and was a huge part of these last two championship teams for the Georgia football program. So Javon Bullard was the first person to make their appearance on the podium this morning. And I have to preface this by saying you can't see this in the video that we posted online because I'm trying to like put my phone above everyone. Brock Bowers was the third player to go. You've got all the Georgia media members here, the regular ones. In the Brock video, what you can't see is the hunt. Like it had to have been minimum 100 people crowded around that one podium. I mean, I can smell the BO all around me. These are people I have never seen in my entire life. People are dying to talk to Brock. And as someone who Brock, he'll he'll admit he's not the best public speaker. That is really not his forte. You could tell when he was walking up to the podium, you could see that light in his eyes go off like, oh my goodness, all these people are here to listen to me and listen to what I have to say. And so we actually pulled the best minute of Brock quotes, but I have to preface this by saying that it, it was really short. He did a good job of getting questions in and out and avoiding the questions that maybe he didn't want to answer. But let's go ahead and hear the best minute from what we got out of Brock today at player availability. Um, I'd say being here. I mean, it's just kind of uh, you kind of think about it when you're growing up, you watch on TV and um, it's just kind of cool being here and just kind of um, I mean, it's just being here is cool. I don't know. Just say that. I mean, people said to just take it in. I've been trying to do that um, no matter what it is, whether I'm just sitting around waiting, just uh, know that, uh, I mean, this is this is what I've been looking forward to pretty much my whole life and just wanting to move on to the next level. So, I mean, that was, it's, it's pretty cool just looking around and seeing all this stuff. Yeah, I feel like I, um, I'm pretty good yard, uh, yards after catch and uh, just being able to make people miss and, uh, I mean, just turn good plays into great plays. Pick. I mean, I just want to uh, go to a place I'm wanting and be able to be used and, uh, uh, yeah, just hopefully have a good rookie season. Um, I think 
one of the things I can improve upon is kind of secondary reaction when I'm blocking, like uh, getting engaged with somebody and they spin or something and just being able to reset and uh, re-engage. Yeah, Georgia helped me, I mean, a ton. I mean, obviously, we, we were going against first-round dudes in defense every single day in practice. So that, like, just that kind of development, uh, going against that kind of competition every day really kind of improved my game and helped me out. So, Connor, as someone that's hearing that for possibly the first time, what were your biggest takeaways from what Brock said? Yeah, I'm going to defend Brock here a little bit. Uh, you know, as someone who's interviewed him a lot, gotten to write about him a lot, I get the sense that people are putting out there that, oh, he's a bad quote, he's not a great talker. I disagree. I think what Brock – Brock, if you ask him about other people, if you ask him about other players in the program, he'll give you good stuff, and he'll talk about them in a good way. Brock, like a lot of people, aren't great or isn't great about talking about himself. For example, Kaylee, what's it like to work at Dog Nation? How happy are you to be here and working for this goal? The first thing I would do would be to point to my coworkers. Hey, there you go. See, it is not easy to talk about yourself, much less in front of a bunch of strangers who, as you point out, have bad video. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to knock Brock at all or, or be like, oh, that was a boring interview. Like, this is who Brock is. We've always known who Brock is. I think the Georgia media should be using this as an opportunity to say, like, yeah, cool. He's not great talking about himself. You know what he is great at? Literally every other thing that he does. And so whether he works out tomorrow uh, at the Combine, you know, I'd love to see it just because I, I am a Combine slash NFL draft nerd. And I would, love, I would love to get some comparison points in terms of what he's able to do athletically. But he's so good. And he was so great in his college career. Like, he doesn't need to run the 40 tomorrow. He, he doesn't need to, to do the bench press or things like that. He's already the best tight end in this class. And as we've seen, like, cool, he could run a 4-4-40 and nothing is going to change his draft stock. Like, he's still probably not going to go in the top 10 simply because of the fact that he plays tight end. So here's the thing is before we get to him possibly not playing tomorrow, one thing that surprised me was after the interview, someone had come up to the usual group of UJ media members and said, you would never know that kid was from California by the way he speaks. He's from Northern California. I, I know he kind of he emulates himself like a South Georgia kid, but I think you said it best. I felt like we got the most out of him when he was talking about other people, but he doesn't really have to speak for himself because actions speak louder than words in this case. All you have to do is go look at any game any film, you see the kind of person that he is. He was even asked about, hey, are you a trash talker on the field? Do you just not like talking to us? And he said, you know, in the moment sometimes, but I like to keep myself humble and I don't want to be a problem off the field. I'd make a, an SNL Californians reference there with you referencing that Brock doesn't have much of an accent, but I'm not 100% sure you would get that reference. I, I don't watch much SNL anymore yeah. since it's become so sensitive. That, that's tough. That, that's an all-time iconic sketch. But, yeah, I, I think with Brock and, and, you know, what he gets out of this, obviously, you know, I think his ankle is fine. Whether he works out or not tomorrow, he said he's going to work out at Georgia's Pro Day. So I think that's at least worth monitoring there. But, again, you, you look at draft range and where he might go, I think the Chargers could maybe take him at five just because, you know, that's Jim Harbaugh and he likes to do things differently. And I think Harbaugh or Brock fits a lot of what Harbaugh likes. I think the absolute floor, in my opinion, is the Cincinnati Bengals at 18. And I know they tagged T. Higgins. They might try and trade him. Uh, who knows? If Brock Bowers is there at 18 and you compare him with Jamar Chase and you compare him with Joe Burrow, uh, I, I think that's something you absolutely consider. And, and so, you know, his range, again, 
much of this is outside of his control simply because it's a loaded year at quarterback, it's a loaded year at wide receiver, and it's a loaded year at offensive tackle, positions that the NFL just values more than tight end. Mm -hmm. So with Brock, I will say he did address within the first minute or minute and a half that he didn't know if he was going to participate tomorrow, which I thought he handled that in the right way. The first time I'd heard word of that was yesterday. Mike Griffith and I have been doing stand-ups here in Indianapolis this week. You can check all of those out on YouTube. But Mike actually made that point last night when I asked him, who's the dog that has the most to prove? And he said, well, I'll tell you who doesn't have to prove anything at all. And that's Brock Bowers. I want you guys to listen what Mike Griffith said last night about Brock Bowers. Boy, that's interesting. You know, it's almost, and, and, and here's why I say it's interesting. Because if I'm Brock Bowers, I don't know if I try to prove anything. Mm -hmm. I've already got the tape. I've already got the film. If I go out there and run, and I don't run a fast enough number, if they would say he ran a 4-5, and I don't think he will, by the way. But it, it almost seems like with a guy like Brock Bowers, because he's not as big or as tall as Rob Gronkowski, I almost wonder if they're going to try to pick on him a little bit. <laughs> you know, and sometimes these NFL types can outsmart themselves. Like, well, he was sensational, but if he doesn't run this number, if he doesn't jump this height, maybe he's not worth the time. So it's kind of a poker game if you're Brock Bowers. You know, you're already the number one tight end. You've got incredible game film that shows you're probably the most explosive tight end maybe in college football history. Do you really want to put yourself under the microscope? Now, I know Brock well enough to know he's a competitor and he's going to want to test. But do you do it here under the microscope or do you wait for pro day? People already know what you're capable of. You're already the number one tight end without a doubt. Nobody's even close. Is there really a downside to him participating tomorrow? You know, again, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if, if he runs slower than anticipated, you know, maybe you knock him down a little bit and, and you slide. But uh, Daniel Jeremiah is the first guy that pointed this out. You know, if Brock goes in the top 15, he's already going to be being paid as a top 10 tight end at that position in terms of dollars on his contract. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I, I think Mike is right to bring this up. Why give them something more that they can pick on when, it, it, you know, you can in a controlled environment at Georgia, their pro day on March 13th, just give them, uh, you know, in a more safe environment for you there. You know, it, there's nothing, in my opinion, that Brock can gain tomorrow by working out. Uh, yes, he can only help fuel the idea that he's this great competitor, but you talk to anyone at Georgia or even going back to his high school days, that's well known and well established. So it's just for me, I think it's the fact that one, he did have that ankle injury at the end of the season, but adding into that as well, it's just, there's not much that he can do to help his draft stock. It's not like he's going to suddenly be a wide receiver and thus vault himself into that top 10, maybe even top five category where I believe he is one of the five best players in this class. So as someone who has interviewed him a lot, you've been around Brock, and him saying he's still not sure as of today, is that almost feel like a guarantee that it's just not going to happen at all? I, I I think if Brock knew for a fact he want, he was going to work out tomorrow, he would have come out and said it. And the fact that, again, he is playing this close to the vest, uh, I, I think would, if I were placing a bet, uh, I would say that I do not expect Brock Bowers to work out tomorrow. So it seemed that the hot topic today with player availability questions is, who have you talked to? And so far we know the Las Vegas Raiders came up, the Steelers came up, the Dolphins came up. The one that was interesting to me is the Chargers. Jim Harbaugh is somebody that played or played or coached against Brock when he was at Michigan, but he also recruited him. Do you think that there's a chance that if Brock is still available, when the Chargers make their pick, there's just no way that Harbaugh is passing, up, passing him up? simply as someone who has seen what he can do, not just at the collegiate level, but at the high school level as well. 
Yeah, I, I think with Brock and the Chargers, that's the most interesting spot. And I think if he doesn't go there, I think there's a real, real strong case. Unfortunately, he does slide out of the top 10. But look, the Chargers are going to have some decisions to make in terms of what they're doing with their salary cap and players surrounding Justin Herbert. Mike Williams is almost certainly going to be a cap casualty for the Chargers there. We'll see what they do with Keenan Allen. They don't have an obvious star tight end on their roster already. Uh, Gerald Everett was their tight end last year. I know they drafted Trey McKitty a few years ago. The question the Chargers are going to have to make is, you know, do they prioritize a right tackle position or do they go after Brock Bowers? Because I think in that situation there, look, you know Harbaugh is going to want physical guys and guys that can, you know, win at the line of scrimmage. Brock Bowers can do that. You go back and look at his time with the 49ers previously, he got a lot out of Vernon Davis, a similarly gifted tight end who I believe is still the highest or the second highest drafted tight end of all time behind Kyle Pitts. So you know that Harbaugh obviously values the tight end. Bowers obviously not as big as Vernon Davis, not quite as tall as George Kittle, but I think plays with a similar type of energy and physicality. And so I think that whoever Harbaugh takes at five, whether it be Joe Alt, the tackle from Notre Dame, maybe J.C. Latham, the best probably right tackle prospect, maybe even potentially Marius Mims if he tests through the roof, uh, because I think right tackle is what the Chargers' other big need is. I think Brock Bowers could absolutely go at five, but I wouldn't be shocked either if Harbaugh chooses to build out along the offensive line there for the Chargers. Well, that was a question that definitely striked my interest today. But now I want to move on to the DBs, who's the other category that we're going to get to see tomorrow, including Javon, Taiki, and Kamari. Who are you most interested to see how they test? I think it's Kamari because he has the chance to go in the first round if he tests well. Uh, you know, look, his biggest question in terms of a draft analyst it is just his ball skills. He only had one interception during his career, and that came back during his freshman season at Vanderbilt. But I think when you turn on the tape, he's a physical tackler. He is, he is very good at locating the ball in coverage. That is something that not every defensive back is capable of doing and has shown time and time again he can match up with some of the best wide receivers in the country. I think his best game by far this past season – came against Missouri. And in that game, you know, it didn't matter where they lined up Luther Burton, who I think a year from now will be a top 10 pick. They played him outside. They played him inside. And Kamari Lassiter was able to mirror him in coverage extremely well. I think that showed that Kamari could even play some nickel at the next level. And the NFL level is very different from and so if he tests well athletically tomorrow, because he's not, you know, he was coming out of high school, he was not this superstar athlete. Uh, but I think you've seen over the time at the University of Georgia, they can do a lot to help get guys to points where they are, you know, capable athletes. And so if he's able to run and say the low four fives or maybe even sneak into the four fours and have a great three cone shuttle time, I think that's going to be very, very big for Kamari because there's maybe about seven cornerbacks that can go in the top 50. And it's going to come down to personal team preference. But I go back to what Kirby Smart had to say at the end of the Orange Bowl against Florida State. Kamari is an absolute competitor, a true dog. He absolutely has that dog in him. And I think he's going to look to go out there and make a real statement tomorrow. Because I think I know Kamari, uh, you know, when he was coming out and there were people talking about them, he was not even the highest recruited cornerback in Georgia's class in terms of class ranking. And he went out and showed almost certainly from the first day he arrived on campus – how good he was, and I think he's got a chance to do something similar tomorrow at the NFL Combine. Yeah, I think if if anybody that is a part of an NFL team wanted to see what Kamari is made of, they need to go look at the Missouri tape versus this year, him guarding Luther Burden. It was almost like he, he was non-existent because Kamari played that spot so well. But one thing that also interests me about Kamari is – what we're not going to get to see, the formal and informal interviews. Kamari is a terrific speaker. He's so engaging and cap 
debating. He's the guy that Kirby wanted to bring to SEC media days. He's kind of the spokesperson for the team. So in your mind, as this NFL buff, do you think that the interviews play a bigger role in the draft than we maybe assume? You know, it's tough. I, I think for guys that go at the top end when the, in those interviews, I think they're hoping that they don't do anything that discerns them or, or scares teams off. Whereas I think for guys, you know, Tyke Smith is maybe a good example. Javon Bullard, I think, is a great example of this. Guys who you sit down with them, you have an interview with them, and you don't have high expectations. You're not, oh, this guy's not a top 50 pick. This guy's not a first-round draft pick. But you come out of that interview, and you're just blown away by what you had, and they exceed expectations there. And that sticks with them on draft day. So for a guy like Kamari, who was voted a team captain, and these teams know he's going to interview well, he's going to impress teams. He does everything right off the field. So, you know, for a guy like Kamari, I don't know how much the interview is going to help him, given his track record, as you point out, is so well known there. But I think of a guy like Javon Bullard. I think of a guy like a Marcus Rosemey Jack Saint, similar to Kamari, a team captain for Georgia. When he gets down and meets with teams at the combine this week, you know he's not seen as a first day pick and certainly not a day two pick either. But I think he is someone who, with a strong combine, you saw him have a very good senior bowl. Was maybe a guy who fifth, sixth round pick at the wide receiver position. He didn't really know what he did well. Well, I think as he's gone through this draft process and if he interviews well, can be someone that goes, you know, maybe early fourth, fourth round, maybe even sneak into the end of the third round because the team just happens to like him that much. And since that, that position group is going to go on Saturday, we will have those interviews posted with Marcus, Live, Kendall, and Ajon tomorrow morning as soon as they're available. And for the rest of these guys that we got to talk to today, they're going to start going tomorrow around 3.30. You can check them out on the NFL Network, or you can check down our analysis and all of our interviews on YouTube. Mike Griffith and I are on the scene. And with that, let's wrap up and let's move on to our continuous series that we've been doing today as a group I'm super, super stoked for. It is the offensive line. There were so many guys I could have put on these graphics. The starters seemed pretty obvious in my head. Um, got a lot in the secondary, but also to this huge crop of freshman offensive line coming through. So let's go ahead and take a look at our first slide here. This is the presumable starters. Yeah. And I think going into spring practice, and this is going to be a continuous storyline going into the fall as well. Jared Wilson is the most important name here. Cedric Van Pran had Absolutely. 44 career starts and that's just not easy to replace. But, you know, I talked with Seth a little bit down at the Orange Bowl, and you talk to people around the Georgia program, they feel from an athletic standpoint, from an offensive line standpoint, and I'm skeptical of this, but Jared Wilson can be a better center than Cedric Van Pran can be. And those are mighty big shoes to step into. I think the big thing with, with, with Jared, look, he's not a true natural center in the same way that Cedric was. And so I'm going to be interested in seeing how he handles the snaps, both under center and out of the shotgun there as he adjusts to being the full-time starter there. But the leadership aspect of that as well, that's something he's going to have to grow into. Now you do have Tate Ratledge who started a national championship game. You have Xavier Trust as well that you can lean on from a leadership standpoint, but from talking to people around this Georgia program, expectations are very, very high for Jared Wilson. And so I think this spring, naturally, because he's really the only guy that doesn't have a ton of starting experience, uh, there's going to be a lot of eyes on him. Monroe Freeling as well as I'm sure a guy we're going to talk a lot about. But Jared Wilson, just how he handles the day-to-day -day, you know, pressures that come with being the starting center for Georgia after Cedric Van Pran did that so well for so long is really, really interesting to me.
Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because Jared Wilson, in my mind, is certainly the most interesting one on this list. When you have a guy like Cedric Van Pran, who's a three-year starter, he's a leader. Those are massive shoes to fill. However, I do think that, in a sense, some of that pressure is taken away because you do have those leaders like Tate Ratledge, who's a fifth-year, and Trust, who's a sixth-year, coming back. When that announcement was made, I mean, just how huge is that for not just this program, but the offensive line in general, especially when you've got your starting quarterback, Carson Beck, coming back? Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite stats, Xavier Truss in his time at Georgia, I I, I want to say through his five years at Georgia, and he's got a chance to obviously continue that as he's back for sixth season. He's 62-6 and six in his time at Georgia. That's just an unreal number of not only games played, but wins accumulated in that time. He's almost certainly going to go down as the winningest player, the player with the most wins in Georgia football history. But you bring back Tate Ratledge, and, and you know, obviously we've talked a lot about them and, and them coming back and what they mean. But you look at a guy even like Dylan Fairchild who might start at that other guard spot. This is his fourth year in the program as well, and he started a lot last year. I think the Amarius Mims injury, while it hurt Georgia at times last season, I think it helped Dylan Fairchild a lot in his development and accelerating it. And so when you have that many you know guards that you can comfortably go in there and play, trust who's going to play both guard and tackle for Georgia just like he did a season ago. Obviously, Tate Ratledge, who, who I think could be a guy that we hear at SEC Media Days uh, this coming July when that was announced on Thursday today. When you have guys like that, you know, it's obviously significant. But even some of the other guys, you know, Ernest Green's not going into his third year. Other than really Monroe Freeling, you've got guys that have been in this program for a while now. And on the offensive line where beef just matters more, uh, having that sort of age and experience I think is critical. And so I, I think for Georgia, getting guys like Tate Ratledge and Xavier Trussback, even though they have talented players like Michael Morris and Dylan Fairchild waiting in the wings – Anytime you can have grown men on your offensive line, I think you absolutely have to take it. So let's hit on Ernest Green some more. This time last year or during the summer, him and Austin Blasky were battling for that spot, dealt with some injury. Is he the sure starter this time around? Absolutely. I think this is a guy who has a very high ceiling. You know, I don't know if he's going to be quite an NFL left tackle. You might see him potentially move into guard like maybe you've seen Jamari Sawyer do. But this is a guy that answered a lot of questions coming out. Uh, you know, missed his entire pretty much freshman season with a back injury. But only he and Cedric Van Pran were the guys that started all 14 games for Georgia on the offensive line a season ago. So he was able to stay healthy last season. And I think going into his second season now, he's experienced sort of the rigors that come with playing at the SEC. But more than that, his body is just better off now, certainly than it was a year ago coming off a back injury. But then even two years ago when he was coming in as a freshman from the highly decorated St. John Bosco out there in California. So I think with 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 Ernest, as he gets into another year of this program and as his body is more developed, I think you're going to see him be more of a power offensive tackle. And you look at some of the guys they've had over the years, you know, Andrew Thomas, uh, Broderick Jones, the left tackle, both first round picks. I do think that Ernest Green could potentially follow in that mold, but he, in my mind, is a very different offensive tackle than those two. Uh, you know, those guys were more finesse players. They were athletes, guys that could go win on the edge, but also win as pass protectors. Ernest Green is one of the best left tackles in terms of run blockers that Georgia has had since Kirby Smart became the head coach of this program back in 2016. And he's certainly a cable bar athlete out there as well. So this guy is a mauler in the run game. And I think Georgia is absolutely going to use that and pairing him with Tate Ratledge at left guard this season. And that's going to be a very promising duo there on the left side of the line. As of right now, if you had to give the offensive line a grade before we've seen him in spring practice, 
uh, Connor's classes in session, what would you grade them? You know, my mom is a teacher and I thought if sports writing didn't work out, I would teach as well. My mom's a teacher too. I'm going to give, I'm going to give this group an A and I think this group can absolutely win the Joe Moore award. It's about the only thing they haven't done. Mm -hmm. They've got multiple guys that are going to be playing in the NFL sooner rather than later. And so the big questions are just, you know, what is the impact of not having a guy like Cedric Van Pran from a leadership off-field standpoint in there? And then with replacing Amarius Mims, you got to experience life like that last year. How how quickly does Monroe Freeling get up to par? And is he a guy that can play every down or is a guy that is getting a majority of those rotation snaps? Because if he's able to do that, I think that's how this Georgia group reaches its highest ceiling with that guy becoming the monster that Georgia thought he was when they recruited him out of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the rotation, guys, you bring up Monroe Freeling, a highly touted recruit whose name I think we're going to be hearing a lot. You also have guys like Micah Morris, Chad Lindbergh. (laughs) I wouldn't consider this a rotation guy, but I feel like we have to throw him in there. The backup center this year is Drew Bobo, and I love knowing that. I will know Georgia's going to try and develop more centers in spring and center as someone who played it. uh, It is a position that can be taught. It can be Mm -hmm. a very steep learning curve. I think Jared Wilson has spoken to that in the past and the difficulties that come with that. And so you're going to look at them and try and developing some guys that can come in and play center because again, you know, in years past last year, for example, you had Austin Blasky who had played a lot of football in Georgia and was Georgia's number two center in the event that Cedric Van Fran got hurt. He fortunately did not. And so it's going to be critical, you know, obviously to keep Jared Wilson healthy, but also find quality depth there behind him. Cause I, I can tell you right now, uh, if you think people are mad at Mike Bobo when the offensive play calling doesn't go well, <laughs> if Drew Bobo is in a big moment and misses a block, they are going to be very unforgiving. So I, I am hoping for the best for Drew. I hope he continues to develop. I think he's a guy at center, you know, cerebral, smart player, a guy that can't help them win. But I would expect center to be a position where Georgia tries to develop some depth this spring. So who would they develop, Connor? You know, off the top of my head here, Malachi Tolliver is a guy that comes to mind. One of the offensive linemen they signed as a freshman here. He's already on campus. I think that is a position to watch there moving forward. Northwest Georgia kid. Northwest Georgia kid. Yes. Uh, One of your favorites, certainly to be at a Cartersville high school, I believe. So certainly someone who you're going to be rooting for and hoping for the best from. So I I think you wonder, you know, maybe they try Dylan Fairchild there. Do they try Micah Morris in the event that they're rotating and moving guys around? to just better develop depth there. Uh, you know, you don't want a, a super big guy in terms of height and weight at that center position. You want maybe a little bit more mobile or agile player there. So I'm going to be interested in seeing how Georgia goes about developing that center position behind, obviously, Jared Wilson. So let's take a step back. You gave them an A rating, which I feel like on the Connor scale of confidence probably has to be pretty high. Where would you put them in terms of all Georgia position groups in rank? I would probably right now have them at number. I'd have them tied for second. And if you may, if you made me say you can't do ties, I would probably put them ahead of quarterback. I would go inside linebacker number one, and I would go offensive line number two. And then I would go quarterback number three on the strength of Carson back there. But uh, it's a deep group. You know, maybe that Kirby, you know, Kirby Smart's going to come out and say, we got to develop better tackles. We got to find better tackle depth because that's something he just always happens to say. But I think this group has a great mesh of both experience while also having some upside for them to get better as you have young players like Ernest Green, Monroe Freeling stepping into bigger roles this season.
And there have been some really strong offensive line groups over the last few years. So why is this one the one that can get over the hump and finally win that Joe Moore Award? Well, I think it helps with the fact that they haven't won it yet, and it has become such a national storyline every year. Uh, I do think that, you know, assuming Georgia makes the playoff, which is, you know, I, I think, look, if Georgia doesn't make the playoffs, we're going to have a lot of problems. Um, and I don't want to, you know, seven wins. I don't want to speak that into, uh, into existence there. But, uh, you know, you look at this offensive line, I think the fact that, again, you know, they've been around the top of the sport for so long. And you add in the fact that it's a group that is always consistently excellent. You know, with the Oscars coming up, uh, you know, a lot of times the best, uh, you know, performer doesn't always win. There's a lot of politics involved. Mm. For example, Leonardo DiCaprio winning for The Revenant. That was not his best movie. That was not his best role. Quite frankly, I don't even think he deserved to win that year. That should have gone to Matt Damon or The Martian. Uh, Martin Scorsese winning for The Departed over... Uh, Goodfellas or even Casino there. So you see that example of, you know, sometimes in reward, in award season, it can be a legacy award. I think maybe this is the year where Georgia, because they've been so consistently excellent for so long on the offensive line, maybe they get the Joe Moore legacy award uh, given to them. Offensive line, that is a massive position. So next week we are going to cover the defensive line. But this is a group I know you feel strongly about. I think all of Dog Nation feels strongly about. You bring in that experience, but also have some young guys that you've been waiting to see and a crop of freshmen that have uh, big names and big bodies, quite frankly. I know you saw that graphic of the of their heights and their sizes, and I'm, you know, it, it's honestly mind-blowing that they can still find these guys. I need a full breakdown of, like, what they eat every single day because it's just beyond me how, how big these kids are. But we know they're going to do a good job protecting QB1. So that is our spring position preview for the offensive line. Got more in store for you over the coming weeks. Now for the topic I've been waiting to get to, probably the one that's not as uh, – um, important on everybody's uh, scales, but one that I've been particularly excited to talk about, and that is about the new Alabama head coach, Kalen DeBoer, who I think is in for a rude awakening. We've never said once that he's going to be like Nick Saban. Nobody's ever going to be like Nick Saban, but he he said um, he said today, this, this was on Twitter. We'll show you this uh, here. Um, he does not use swear words, and I think just – because it says swear words, that says so much. Not cuss words, it's swear words. And it says, there's a fire, don't get me wrong. It's still the same standard. It's just messaged a different way. Let me just say, all kudos to him for not using swear words. But do you think that you have to try harder to not use them than them just like naturally coming out? Look, I'm I'm the worst person to ask about this. Uh, and look, Kalen DeBoer, he's from South Dakota. Uh, you know, grew up there. South Dakota football made very different. I grew up in the state of Georgia playing Georgia high school football. Uh, football coaches are some of the best cussers in the world. Uh, it is an art form with them. Uh, go listen to a Kirby Smart uh, halftime speech or pregame speech, as a lot of people have in the wake of this Kalen DeBoer comment. Uh he is using words quite poetically. And unfortunately we can't play like more than five seconds of a Kirby smart speech uh, to his team from behind the closed locker room doors. I think part of it maybe just come, you know, again, growing up in the South, growing up playing for Georgia high school football coaches, you just hear it. And, you know, it's not, you know, and this is something you sometimes see when like locker room culture spills out into the real world. It's one of those things of, yeah, you just sort of come become conditioned to it. So when you hear an F-bomb or you get MF'd, 
on the football field, it's no big deal. But then when you, you know, accidentally say that in front of, you know, a niece or a nephew uh, and, and the, your aunts and uncles recoil in horror, it's like, yeah, I got to learn to turn this on and off a little bit better. And, and so, you know, Kirby, guy that's been in the South his entire life, has been around the game of football, son of a high school football coach, uh, you know, there are multiple ways to skin a cat, so to speak. And, and look, if Kalen Bohr is able to get his guys fired out without having to cuss and, and use that kind of language, all the credit to him. I just know for me personally, when I hear Kirby Smart swearing, uh, I even get fired up a little bit. You hear in press conferences, he doesn't do this as much as he used to. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you think back to the Auburn game after 2019, where he says how HBTFD. Uh, even that, you know, hearing that at a press conference gets you fired up a little bit. So I think it's just a difference. I, I it, you know, like, I'm not saying if Kalen Bohr starts losing games, he needs to start cussing a little bit more, but you know, <laughs> things are different down here in the SEC, so to speak. So I'll be really interested in seeing how that plays. I think that's one thing that's hard for me to wrap my brain around is, is how do you relate to your players? Because you know that your players are doing it. They probably know swear words that, you don't even realize, but my thing is, is, is by making it this big deal and coming out and, and saying it, I feel like that's how you become an inside joke with your team. I feel like maybe there is, even though this should be something that you respect your coach for, for standing by his values, I almost feel like you respect them a little bit less in that way, because I feel like with swearing and coaching, it almost it's this sense of passion. It's it's because you care. You don't do it just to say it. You don't do it because you're mad at your players. It's just because you care so much. And that's just how the words come out. And it brings me back to um, Gus Malzahn is like this, too. And a few years ago, he had said that he beat the dog crap out of Georgia again. That is how you become an inside joke for the rest of your life. And for these Alabama players, the ones that stayed, we know Nick Saban this I mean we've seen Nick Saban get after it on the sidelines clipboard in hand I feel like that's just such a massive adjustment to make and maybe part of this is Kalen you know coming out and trying to distance himself from Nick Saban because Saban so famously would chew out assistants you never saw him chew out players obviously or all that often but would famously go after assistants on the sideline and I think you know maybe this is Kalen trying to differentiate differentiate himself from Nick Saban in that regard. But I mean, look, if the losses start coming and Caleb and, and Caleb is, you know, not, not all that interested. Caleb DeBoring, uh, Kitty DeBoer, <laughs> uh, like the nicknames start coming off really easily. Now, again, like Kirby Smart's got maybe the worst last name to ever have for a football coach because it is so easy to make fun of him for it. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I think you're hundred percent right in, in, you know, and you're someone who's been around the game a lot. You've been on those high school fields. Mm -hmm. you just understand, like, it's not coming from a place of meanness or, you know, cruelty. Most of the time, uh, I think there are examples where lines can be crossed in that example, but oftentimes yeah. it's not so much the use of an F word or something like that, but rather just, you know, you take it a step too far in the way you were being critical and so I think in using cuss words, and I can't believe we're getting this deep. I know. This is good. But I, I think you're right. It's just a source of passion. And you show that you were so frustrated. You're so energized and engaged in it that, you know, again, I can think back. There was a moment uh, during Orange Bowl practice where a reporter who it was not me. It was another reporter who works for another site. Uh, was just standing in the middle of practice. And Kirby told him to move. And he kind of like didn't move the way that Kirby had wanted him to move. And Kirby reamed into him, and the message was heard loud and clear. And so I think moving forward, like, 
you know, look, all credit to Kalen for coming out and offering that and saying it. That's great. That's fantastic. This is one of those things, as you point out, if the results don't start coming, this is something that is going to get brought up as to potentially a reason why, as ridiculous as that sounds. So you you were the one that sent me the tweet, and this is what it brought me back to. I played high school basketball, and when I was a freshman, I was not, you know, Michael Jordan. I wasn't a five-star. I was just a little scrawny 14-year-old. Um, but I did get to sit the bench on varsity, which was a great experience. But my real role on the team wasn't this, like, motivator, public speaker. I got to hold my coach's cuss towel. My sweet coach, his name was Judson Cox. He's a principal now. And he was very passionate about the game, but he didn't always know how to relay that to high school girls. So he had a towel and I got to be the one that would hold the towel. And when he would get extra, extra passionate, he would walk by me and put his hand out. He would grab the towel and he would cuss into that towel and then toss it right back to me. And I swear when he brought that cuss towel, our team never played better. It was high school sports it's a little bit different yeah. you can't be like that on the sidelines they'll give you a tea they'll throw you out but it was in those moments that I felt like our team understood like okay now it's time to get real now it's time to be serious because we can relate to that in a sense and so when you sent me that it, it brought me back to that and I'm going to try to there's a picture of me holding the cuss towel one day I'm going to find it and I'm going to bring it up next week I love that my great high school cussing story we had played West Forsyth High School Dylan Fairchild Oscar Delp played at that school not at the same time as i did obviously we got a butt kicked by them i want to say the final score was like 43 to 7 we're watching film of the game it was early on we had a fourth and one and run a little pitch play uh option and our fullback drops the ball and we're watching film and i can't say what our coach said in the film session because it is truly like x-rated uh in terms of expletives used but like hey message was heard loud and clear and it has stuck with us ever since so uh, I think, again, that's just another great example uh, of cussing, you know, maybe in the general population, if we're going out and having uh, a meal at a restaurant or something along the lines of that, you're not going to, you know, use the profane language. But in sports, in particular college football, obviously, as well, I think that's an example where that is sort of an accepted behavior. Well, I can certainly say one thing that we're thankful for is Coach Kirby Smart, his leaked um, cussed out speeches because I think we could all if we could have them injected into our veins we definitely would because even when we're not on the field you could listen to that every morning and you would probably have the most motivated day at work ever so thank you Kaylin DeBoer for letting us know that you don't cuss so we can continue to talk about it and when things go bad we can continue to bring it up and for that I cannot be more excited Connor one last thing for you as the NFL combine um, really gets into it. What's, what's one thing that you would encourage dog nation to look out for these next three days? Yeah, I think Lad McConkey is a super interesting guy to me. I know Mike Griffin's obviously going to have a great story on him either Friday or Saturday. And then he has his big workout on Saturday there. I, again, I think this is a guy, obviously Georgia fans know about him and know how good he is, but I think this is going to be a chance that he fully wakes up the NFL community with what he goes out there and does. And so we'll see if he's ultimately able to be a first round pick. But I think Ladd has represented Georgia so well over his career, and I expect him to do that once again at the NFL Combine for the Georgia football program. Well, Connor, again, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Dog Nation offseason. Dog Nation, make sure to check out the Combine on the NFL Network. Make sure to check out our socials. We've got more coverage here coming your way. Make sure to go outside where your kids can't hear you and go say your favorite cuss word in honor of Kirby Smart and Kaylin DeBoer. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We will be right back here 
next Thursday, Facebook, YouTube, DogNation.com, Twitter, and our one person on Twitch, wherever you tune in from. We're always appreciative of you, and we'll see you right back here next Thursday, 7 o'clock.